Father in heaven, as we jump into this message today, and that's really what we're doing, we're jumping. I'm asking that you take the lead, that you guide us through it in the ways that we need you to. Father, would you let it be your message and not mine, your words and not mine, and would you cut through to each one of our hearts that we might understand the way you have created us, the ways that you have made us, would you help us see our most basic, intricate of needs and not only see them, but accept them and learn to live them? That is particularly important with the subject matter we're covering today. Thank you for being in this place with us. I pray that you'll be honored and glorified by all that we're discussing. In Jesus' name, amen. Buried in the back of my mind, I have a, a list. I'll bet you do too. Maybe you've just never named it. Maybe you haven't thought as much about it as I have, but I have this list. And it's not just a list of names, it's a a list of faces that I can put with each one of those names. I call it my favorite person list. These are people that I've done portions of life with, and I can honestly tell you, I will never forget them. There's parts of their stories that I just love, the influence that they have had on my life that's been wonderful. Just being around them has been a special blessing. As a result of that, they've become one of my favorite people. There are a number of folks from this church and from Libby that are on my list of favorite people. And like I say, maybe you have a list like that. They're, they're deeply personal, and I have always kept mine fairly private. Just because it's, it's one of those personal, private things, it doesn't always need to be shared. Today, though, I want to tell you about one person on that list. I've mentioned him to you before. Is my grandfather, Roy Allspaw, on my dad's side. Love my grandpa. He and I fished together and we hunted together. We spent a lot of time at his farm with one another. And every one of those experiences was just absolutely spectacular. I looked forward to them. I longed for them. And, and I have appreciated every one of them through the years. My grandfather passed away the Wednesday before Thanksgiving in 1986. It was my freshman year of Bible college. I had graduated high school that spring. And one of the the great tragedies of his death then was 10 months later, I would meet Tina and I wish she had gotten to know him. I really do. He would have loved her. She would have loved him. They would have loved being together. Along with the hunting and the fishing that I did with my grandfather, one of my favorite things was just sitting at his feet, listening to him tell stories. And oh, could he ever do it? He would tell stories of the past that would cause my imagination to go all kinds of different places. He would tell stories of the present that would make the situations of his life just come alive. My granddad could tell stories. A lot of times he would tell those when he would come over to our house on Sunday afternoons. We'd go to church and grandma and grandpa would come over to meet us and and we'd get to run around with them, look forward to them coming. My brother and I both would. We'd look out the, the front window waiting for them to pull up and when they would get there, it'd be a race to see who would get to them first. It was particularly exciting in the fall and the winter and the early spring because during those seasons, my granddad always wore a hat and a coat. And as soon as he would get inside the door, he would take his hat off and he'd place it on my head or on my brother's head and wrap his coat around us and we would get to wear them through the house and, and he'd let us do that for a long time until eventually we'd end up upstairs where we would take off his coat and take off his hat and, and place them on the bed 
till it was time for them to leave. And Grandpa would tell us to go get his hat and coat for him. And we'd run back upstairs, do the same thing. Put on that coat and that hat and head back downstairs. He always gave us plenty of warnings so we could wear them for a good long while. I was talking with my brother a few months ago. And we were just, for whatever reason, going back over that memory. And both of us said that we still have some of Grandpa's hats. You see, when he died, that was something that we both asked for. We said, we, we want one of his hats or two of his hats. And Grandma gave them to us. We don't wear them around the house now. might look kind of silly, but we have them. They're a reminder of who he was. I wish I could have asked for his Bible, which is one of my favorite things in situations like that. I like to look through people's Bibles at the end of their life because they become a record of how a person lived with Christ. And the problem, though, is this. My grandfather didn't own one. He didn't have a Bible. To the best of my knowledge, he lived his life without Jesus Christ in his heart. There is a rumor that says the week that he died, he invited Jesus into his life. You see, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he went into the hospital in Wichita, Kansas, on a Monday to have that cancer removed. He was deathly afraid of it, just terrified of it. When he went in, they they got as much as they could, and on Wednesday, they told him that they were not able to get all of the cancer, and he was going to have to go through chemotherapy, which was something that literally terrified him. That evening, he passed away. A preacher would tell us later, particularly my dad, that my grandfather had called for him to come in and and visit with him after he found out that they hadn't gotten all of the cancer. That's extremely unique because my granddad didn't have a lot of use for preachers. That wasn't the the person that he would choose to spend time with. So for him to call and ask for a preacher to come was just miraculous. Later on, that preacher would tell my father that Grandpa gave his life to the Lord laying in that hospital bed. As a result of that, I, I have a great appreciation for passages of scripture like this. And you don't have to turn with me, just listen to this. This is Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Here's the the teaching of that passage. There are people that will spend their lives without the Lord. That's a choice that they will make. And at the 11th hour, a number of them will change that. They will give themselves over to a relationship with Jesus Christ, invite him to come live in their heart, and then they'll just simply fade from this world. They'll go to be with their God. I hope, and I hold on to that hope, 
That's exactly what my grandpa did because it means that we'll be together again. I have no problem, none whatsoever, with 11th hour conversions because of my grandpa. I've been a Christian all my life. I've borne the work in the heat of the day. I don't care if somebody waits until the minute before they die to accept Jesus Christ into their life. If they are an 11th hour and 59th minute conversion, that's okay. Totally okay. That's the teaching of that parable. That's not really what I want us to grab hold of this morning. I want to take you back, though, in this story about my grandfather and remind you of what it was like when he would come to the house and he'd put his hat on us. and He'd wrap us up in his coat. Could you imagine what it would be like if Grandpa had sent word through a messenger that he wasn't going to be able to come, but he was going to send his hat and his coat to the house and we could wear them around all afternoon long, he just wouldn't be there. Would we be excited about that? Not at all. Not at all. Because you see, it wasn't just the hat and the coat. It was the fact that Grandpa was coming over. That's what we were excited about. We were going to get to be with him, and and he was going to tell stories, and he was going to do all this stuff. It was all about the relationship, not the hat and the coat. Yet for some reason within Christianity, we have made it about the hat and the coat in our walk with the Lord. Lord, give us the fun things of Christianity. Let those come to rest on us. Let us have those things, but we don't need the relationship. We don't want the relationship. A number of people do that today. All they want are the externals, the fun things of Christianity, giving no second thought whatsoever to the relationship, the connectivity that God has ordained for us. That's what God really wants. He wants that type of a relationship. And He has wrapped it up. God has wrapped that desire up in a concept within Christianity referred to as worship. It is a sign of the relationship. And it exists all through the Bible. We're taught that relationship, even that action, the action of worship from beginning to end. That's God's desire. Let me show it to you. We're going to go to kind of a strange place. Some of this is going to seem a little random this morning. You hang with me by the end. Hopefully it's going to make sense. We're going to go to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Genesis and then Exodus. And we're going to start in chapter 3. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. Moses was born during a tumultuous time in the nation of Egypt. He was born to Hebrew parents in the nation of Egypt. That's pretty unique. Now, in order to understand the tumultuous time, you have to understand how they got there. The end of the book of Genesis, Joseph was in charge. He was a Hebrew. He was in charge of everything that was going on during a period of famine in the nation of Egypt. He brought his whole family. There were just at 70 of them. He brought them down to Egypt during that time where he was able to take care of their needs. The Hebrews became a huge part of the Egyptian culture. They were there for 430 years. During those 430 years, they were very prolific. They had a lot of children. The Egyptians looked at the Hebrew people and said, Oh, my word, there are so many of them that if they actually united to rebel against us from within our own borders, we could not control them. So they put them under the the yoke of slavery. They turned the the Israelites, the soon-to-be Israelites, the Hebrew people, into slaves. And the Egyptians were very, very hard on them. Pharaoh said, this is the way we're going to do it, and there was no discussing it with him. When Moses was born, things were so bad that Pharaoh had actually declared if the Hebrew women were having sons, they were to be killed. 
He told the midwives, as soon as they give birth, I want you to kill the, the male babies. Let the girls live, but kill the male babies. The midwives ignored him. They let the babies continue to come, and the boys continue to come, and Pharaoh couldn't figure it out. Here's what the midwives said about this pretty good stuff. They said, you know what? Those Hebrew women are so tenacious, they're out in the field working. As soon as they have to give birth, they just do it right in the field. Then they get up and go back to work. We can't even get there. There's nothing we can do about it. That's a great lie. Absolutely wonderful lie. And Pharaoh bought it. He bought it. So Moses was born that way. Even though he was supposed to be killed and the edict had been given that his life was to be ended, his mother and his sister were sharp enough that they placed him in a basket and then put him in the river among the reeds where they knew that Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe. All of this is in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 if you want to read it. So they came down to bathe, Pharaoh's daughter did. They found Moses floating here in this basket. They looked at him and said, oh, what a cute little baby. They took him back and Pharaoh said, that's fine, he can live in my home. And Pharaoh's daughter raised him as her own. Now again, he was saved by the sovereignty of God, no question about it, but the tenacity of his mom was pretty significant as well. She became his nursemaid in Egypt. She'd set this whole thing up. It was a beautiful thing. Try to separate a mother from her child, see what happens. That's exactly what took place. So now she's living in Pharaoh's home, taking care of her child until he gets to a certain age, and then she just kind of falls off the page. We don't know what her name was. We do not know what Moses' father's name was. We just know that they were both Hebrews. That's how he ended up in Egypt. Now, his ancestry tied him to that group of people, even though he was raised in an Egyptian home and he had all the privileges of that home, he was still tied to the Hebrew people. At one point, we read in Scripture that he was out among the Hebrews, and he saw the Egyptians being very harsh to one of them. One of the Egyptian guards was beating on a Hebrew slave. Moses intervened. The Bible says he looked around to see that nobody else was watching, and he beat that Egyptian to death. Then he hid his body. Pharaoh heard about it. His adopted grandfather, he got very upset. He decided that he was going to kill Moses. Moses went on the run to a place called Midian, on the run from his adopted grandfather. He's in a distant land now at a well where people came to water their flocks. Some ladies came up to get water. There were some people that that got in their way, caused them some problems. Moses watched for a while, then decided to intervene. He did. He ran off the bad guys. We don't know exactly what happened. He just ran off the bad guys. The girls were pretty enthralled with that. He had become their hero, so they took him home, introduced them to their dad, who happened to be a priest in the land of Midian. Now, the Bible would actually give three different names for this man, and it's caused a lot of people to say, who is he? Or is the Bible just contradicting itself? One of the names for his soon-to-be father-in-law was Ruel, R-E-U-L. One of the other biblical names for his father-in-law is Jethro, And then in the book of Numbers, we find another name for him, which is pretty funny, Hobob. That's his name. So you got Ruel, Jethro, and Hobob. And people have said, well, there's three different names for this same man. The Bible's contradicting itself. That's all that it can be. That's not it at all. Those were just three different names for the same guy. Let me illustrate for you. Dave Bulwer sitting over here to my left. Dave is known to some people as Dave. Other people call him David. Other people call him bullware. And from this point forward, if there is any benevolence in God whatsoever, and you people are gracious to me in any way at all, people will start calling him Hobob. (laughs) So you got different names for the same person. That's exactly what was going on with Moses' father-in-law. Three different names for the same guy. 
Well, Moses marries into the family, and then he starts tending Hobab's sheep. He's out in the wilderness with them. God is preparing him for what he's going to have to do. And something spectacular happens. Look at this in Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now it's verse 12 that I really want you to listen to. Catch it one more time. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now that sounds kind of narcissistic on God's behalf, doesn't it? When all of you are out of slavery and all of you are out here in in freedom, you will worship me. At first glance, it sounds very egotistical. Did God really say that? When I bring you out of this, you will worship me? That doesn't sound right. But it is not the only time in the book of Exodus that God will make the same declaration. Let me show you some real fast. We're going to go to to chapter 7. You can turn with me through these. I want you to see the same thing. Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 16. Moses is now talking to Pharaoh. He's going in to, to share with him. And Moses says to God, well, God, what's going to happen if Pharaoh doesn't listen to me? God says, I got it covered. Listen to what happens. Chapter 7, verse 16. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He isn't listening. So God sends a plague of blood, turns all of the fresh water to blood. God can do that. When we bow up our back against him, God has a way of getting our attention. Yet did you catch it? God said through Moses, Let my people go that they might come out into the wilderness and worship me. Same thing, chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Here he is saying the same thing again. Sounds egotistical. Sounds narcissistic. Let them go that they can come out here and worship me. Pharaoh says, no, God sends a plague of frogs. When God sends a plague of frogs, there's frogs everywhere. There's frogs in the kitchen cupboards. There's frogs under the covers of your bed. There are frogs in your truck. There are frogs in the bathroom. There are frogs in the peanut butter jar when you open it. There were frogs everywhere. Now, I appreciate frog legs as much as the next guy, but that's ridiculous. And Pharaoh won't let him go. 
won't let them go. Skip over now with me. Chapter 8, verse 20. Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Pharaoh says, no, God sends flies. First it was frogs, now it's flies. In between the two, gnats. He's trying to get his attention and Pharaoh's not listening. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Pharaoh says, no. God sends a plague on the livestock of the Egyptians and all of their livestock dies. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Same narcissistic, egotistical statement. Let them go that they might worship me. Pharaoh says no. Chapter 10, verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. And the Bible says his heart was hardened and he would not do it. Chapter 10, verse 24. During a plague of darkness, this is what happens. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. And Moses said, no. He said, everything goes with us. Our women, our children, our livestock, our herds, our flocks, everything goes with us. The Bible would say that Pharaoh said no again. Think of everything that he's been through, and he says no again. They just came through a plague of darkness where the Hebrew people could see the Egyptian people were blind by it. And that wasn't enough. So God sends one last plague. It's the plague of the firstborn. Firstborn male of every family, whether it be human or animal, died. Unless they placed blood over the doorpost going into their homes, so that when the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt, their firstborn males died. Not just the babies, not just the newborns. Firstborn male of every family died. Finally, Pharaoh said, go. And they did. The men, the women, the children, the livestock, the flocks, the herds, everybody left Egypt. They went out into the wilderness. By chapters 14 and 15 of the book of Exodus, do you know what they did? They worshipped. They worshipped God. Moses led the way. He wrote a song that, that the children of Israel began to sing in worship of what God had done for them. Narcissistic, egotistical, that's what God said was going to happen. Let my people go that they might come into the wilderness and worship me. Again, at first glance and on the surface, it may seem that God did that all for himself. And if that's the case, it's hard to understand how God could think that way because we're taught forever not to. But here's what you have to understand. God brought them out into the wilderness to worship him, not for his sake, but theirs. They were brought into the wilderness to worship God for their sake. And every time we worship today, it is for our sake. It is a completion of who God created us to be. One preacher would say it this way, whenever we see something intrinsically wonderful, we must praise it. The experience is not complete until we wrap words around it. That's part of how God has wired us up. We are wired up to praise. We are wired up for worship. 
So when God said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might come out into the wilderness so that they may worship me, he wasn't saying that for his sake. He was saying that for their sake. And anytime we come into worship, it isn't for God's sake. It's for ours. God is the object of our worship, but it fulfills us. It completes us. It happens in all kinds of different ways. It really does. Maybe you get up in the morning on, on a Monday and you're headed into work and the, the sky is clear and the Cabinet Mountains have a little bit of snow still on the peaks and the sun is hitting them. There is something wired within you that causes you to praise that and to say thank you to the Creator for it. God said, I'm going to find different ways to draw people's attention to me. That's one of them. Maybe you're driving along the Kootenai River and you're able to see the rocks at the bottom of the river look right through the water. It is clear and pristine and the sun is reflecting off of it and it causes you to worship. Maybe you see a herd of elk on the side of a mountain and they have no idea that you're there watching them. and It causes you to worship. There are different ways that that happens because we express what God has done for us. Tina and I were on our way to Missoula on Thursday to see Gene and Darlene Oji. Gene was having, hopefully, the last procedure he's going to have to have for his heart issue. And, and on our way there, we're driving along the Clark Fork River. A, a flock of geese flew right in front of us, and they were coming from the right to the left. And just as they got over a field to our left, they set their wings and started to land in that field. And I said to Tina, I couldn't help it. I said, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? So the geese were setting their wings, and they were landing. You see, that's how it is. God's wired us up for it. He's wired us up to do that. It happens in all kinds of different ways. One of my favorites is this. It happens in wedding ceremonies. I love this. If we were having a, a ceremony here and I was the one performing it, a lot of times I would be standing right here when the wedding party is coming in. Barb Rossman's our wedding coordinator. She's in the back sending everybody in. The groom's standing over here to my left. Sometimes the groomsmen are already there. Bridesmaids are coming down the aisle and they're going over here to my right and flower girl and ring bearer and all the things that make weddings just fairy tales for a lot of ladies. My favorite moment, my absolute favorite moment in the wedding is right when Barb opens those doors and the bride is standing there. And she walks in those doors, gets back to the archway there, to the overhang. And I look at the groom and I always say this to him because it is my favorite moment. I said, tell me the first word that comes to your mind. Now, nobody can hear that because my mic's off. I just look at him and say, tell me the first word. You know, I have yet to find one groom that is speechless. Every one of them can say something. They'll say, oh, beautiful, or stunning, or awesome, or some of the more articulate ones will just go, wow. That's all they can come up with because they're wired up for that moment to praise it. Now, imagine when God is involved, when God causes the moment. We are wired up to praise Him. We are wired up to call attention to what we have just seen. God designed us that way. God wants us to be able to worship, to give Him credit for what we have just experienced, to give Him credit for what we have just seen, to praise Him for it. And God wants us to over and over and over again. And hopefully those words are on your mouth. Hopefully you wrap words around those moments. But the truth is, within modern Christianity, not very many people do. Not very many people have adopted a lifestyle of worship, giving praise and credit to God for what He has done. Sometimes that's because of teaching. Sometimes that's because of history. Sometimes that's just because of personal comfort. 
Sometimes it just comes from the experiences that we've had in the past where we've never been freed to really live a life of worship. And that's tragic because that means that we are suppressing what God has put within us. There's a great story that illustrates that. God was talking to St. Peter, they're both up in heaven, about a, a preacher that loved to golf, loved to golf. One Sunday morning, God said to Peter, he's going to go golfing this morning, he's not going to go to church. I'm going to have to punish him for it. Peter said, well, I want to see how that works. You know how Peter's wired up. He wants to see what's going to happen. So that preacher actually ditches church on Sunday morning. Associate ministers live in dreaded fear of that. Deany lives in dreaded fear that I'm going to call on a Sunday morning and say, hey, I can't make it. You're going to have to cover it. This guy called the associate minister and said, I can't make it. You're going to have to cover it. I don't know what his excuse was, but he headed to the golf course and he smoked it. He had an amazing round of golf, better round of golf than he'd ever shot in his life. Came in four under par. He'd never been under par ever. And here he is four strokes under. Gets to the 18th hole, and he has the best hole of his life. In fact, he shot his very first hole-in-one. Peter looks at God and says, I don't get it. I thought you said you were going to punish him. God says, I am. Who's he going to tell? <laughs> That's great. This is really great. Because we're wired up to express it. Particularly where God is involved. We are wired up to express it. So this morning... As we wrap this up, I want to give you some tools to help with that, to help you adopt a lifestyle of worship that it might become a part of who you are, an expression of your relationship with God. First thing is this. It'll take us just a little bit, not very long, so hang with me through this. You have to get to a place where you are looking at life through the eyes of your heart, not your physical eyes. You have to get to a place where you are looking with the eyes of your heart. Go with me to the New Testament. Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in, in uh, chapter 6. Here's a little bit of the backstory of what's going on. Jesus and the, the apostles, the disciples, had just been together with 5,000 men, a lot of women and children. And Jesus had been doing some teaching. John the Baptist had just lost his head. And Jesus had gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And all these people followed him. And they wanted to hear what he had to say. And the disciples were there with him. And the end of the day, the disciples said, Lord, these people are hungry. Get them out of here. Send them home. They need to go get something to eat. Jesus said to them, you feed them. They said, we don't have anything. He said, dig around, see what you come up with. They found a few fish and a few loaves of bread, and Jesus blessed it, and they fed everybody. There were basketfuls left. After that was over, he put the disciples in a boat, sent them out into the Sea of Galilee, told them he'd catch up. You ever been put in a boat by somebody and told that they'll catch up? How are you going to do that? what Jesus did. He said, you go ahead of me, I'll catch up. And he did. Came walking right across the top of the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water. When he got to him, he climbed into the boat and listened to what happens. This is chapter 6, verse 51. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts, their hearts were hardened. They had just experienced two miraculous things. They had just seen Jesus bless these few fish and these few loaves of bread. They fed over 5,000 people. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand that it was Jesus who did that. Now, here he comes, walking across the top of the water, climbs into their boat. They don't understand it because their hearts were hardened. My friends, there's a lot of us that have that same problem. We see the hand of God and the influence of God all around us, but we don't understand it because our hearts are hardened. 
So it becomes a matter of saying, Lord, open the eyes of my heart that I might see. Soften my heart that I might experience what you have in store for me today. Allow me to see it for what it really is. And if you begin to offer that prayer, and you begin to put that before God, He responds that you might see Him. And when you do, this is where the second tool comes into play. You have to get to a place where you learn how to express it. You learn how to wrap words around it, first to God and then to other people. I grew up within a church culture where expressive worship was never taught. I grew up within a church culture where worship was defined this way. We came to church on Sunday morning. We sang a few songs with our hands in our pockets. And if it really got lively, we would clap our hands along with whoever was leading worship. That was the most expressive it ever got. And we certainly were not taught to take that expression outside of church. We were taught that the only place to express it was with inside the confines of that building on Sunday morning. That was the culture that I grew up in. David, you grew up in a culture just like that. Is that right? We were never taught to do that. What a horrible tragedy. Because God wants us to live a life of worship, expressive worship, where we can first say to the Lord, thank you for what you have done, and then begin to involve other people in it. I'm so glad I have learned that. I am so glad that I have learned to be able to say, Lord, thank you for putting me right here in this moment, right now. Eli and I were up on the top of Butler Creek yesterday looking down across the railroad tracks and, and the Fisher River into the People's Creek drainage. And we're both sitting on the back of our horses and I couldn't help but say, Eli, this is, this is beautiful. I'm so glad that God put us here. I'm so glad that we get to see this right now. My first expression was to God and my second one was to my son. Learning how to express moments of worship matters. If you don't know how to do it, the psalmist can help. Go with me right to the middle of your Bible. Psalm chapter 71, verse 8. The psalmist writes, My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Now, I have to give this warning. There are people that have the declaration of praise on their lips all the time. But it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with calling attention to themselves. That's not what the psalmist is talking about. The psalmist is talking about pure declaration of praise. God, thank you for what you've done. Let me tell others about what you have done. It isn't just a matter of saying the right words in the right moments. This declaration of praise that the psalmist is talking about is between us and God, not us and other people. It's between us and the Lord that we might be fulfilled, that we might be complete in God's design for us. Sometimes it's a growth process to get there, even for the psalmist. This is found in Psalm chapter 17, verse 15. And I in righteousness, I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. You see, the psalmist has said that in order to adopt this lifestyle, he had to get to a place where he was satisfied with the things of God. Satisfaction's hard for people in the world we live in today. Maybe it's Thanksgiving Day and we eat this great meal and we are stuffed, just full to the brim, and we, we pat our bellies and say, wow, I am really satisfied. It lasts for about two hours, and then that bag of leftover turkey calls your name, and there's a piece of pumpkin pie, and your satisfaction's gone, you want more. Maybe a have a great night's sleep, and you get up in the morning and you think, I am really, truly satisfied. I'm well rested. We'll wait 12 hours and see what happens. Satisfaction is fleeting, but in Christ it's permanent. 
I am truly satisfied in Christ. And when that happens, there's an expression of praise on our lips. If you're wondering how to get there, though, and you think to yourself, okay, I can do that. I can pray that God will open the eyes of my heart and I can learn how to be expressive, but, but how does it really happen? Well, here it is. This is the last tool and you have to grab this. You have to learn to anticipate what God is going to do. Anticipate what God is going to do. I'm going to take you back to the book of Exodus. Turn there with me, would you? Exodus chapter 33, right towards the end of the book. I'm going to read a passage for you and as I do... I want to encourage you to have a question in your mind. That question is this. Who did the work? That's the question. Who did the work? Now listen to this. Chapter 33, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now here's the question. Who did the work? Who did the work? Somebody say it. God did the work. One of the problems we have is we try to create moments. God creates moments. You see what just happened? God took Moses, put him in the cleft of the rock. God covered him with his hand. God removed his hand. God protected him. God created the moment. Moses just had to anticipate it. Learn to anticipate the moments that God creates in your life that you might worship. Whether that's on Sunday morning or whether that's on Tuesday afternoon or Friday night, God creates the moments. Your responsibility is to worship. Your responsibility is to give glory. What you will find out is that you are enriched by that worship. As much or more than God is, you are enriched by that worship. Because a couple of things happen. A couple of things take place. There's an old story that says, when the first American Indian saw the Grand Canyon, he tied himself to a tree out of fear. When he first saw it, first came across it, that was all he could do. He wasn't sure what was going to happen, so he tied himself to a tree. There's some thought that all through the Old Testament, even the New, that same thing happened when people saw God. They would tie themselves to trees out of fear, figurative, not literally. You see that really in Isaiah's account. This is chapter 6. Don't turn, just listen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Right up to this point, when Isaiah is watching all of this, here's what he has determined. He has looked and seen the vastness of God. This is how big God is. So big that even the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Listen to the next step. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah looks into the heavens and he sees this and he understands the vastness of God and how small he is. And the second thing that he figured out is that he was in need of a Savior. He figured out how small he was. God is vast and I am small. And in his smallness, he identified all of his sins. And did you see what God did? The angel came with coal and the tongs and touched his lips and said, you have been atoned for. That's the same thing that happened when Jesus died on the cross for us. We were atoned for. The price was paid for our sins by a Savior that was willing to bleed. And doesn't that demand worship? The vastness of God boiled down to the smallness of us comes out in the expression of salvation as God says, I will take care of you. Worship is called for. There's a certain element of fear in that because we will see God for who He is. We will also see ourselves for who we are. The joy of it, though, we will see God again and our need for Him. That's what worship does.